This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by G-Technology and FilmTools.com. G-Technology is a leading brand for professional-grade storage solutions for the media and entertainment industries. Since their inception in 2004, G-Technology has consistently offered reliable, high-performance hard drives. If you are in the market for some new storage, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out the hottest product offerings from G-Technology. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Leo Trombetta, ACE. Leo is a feature film and TV editor with credits that include feature films Twin Falls, Idaho, Parkland, and work as an additional editor on Black Hat. His TV work includes Narcos, Mad Men, Carnival, and Roswell, among others. He's been nominated for numerous Primetime Emmy and Ace Eddie Awards. Today, we talk about his work on the latest season of True Detective for HBO, for which he was just nominated for a 2019 Primetime Emmy. So you've been working on uh, True Detective. Yeah, I did all the um, all eight episodes of True Detective. That, isn't that unusual for one editor to work on as, as, as a solo person? It is. I mean, it's been done. Uh, I think it's been done before. I know the night of there were two editors, but one editor did the first episode and another editor did the remaining. But but I think this might be a, it's definitely unusual. How it started was I, I got a call from uh, Laurie Slonka, who was uh, she actually was the um, post supervisor on the, uh, the night of and she was the post supervisor on True Detective. And she called me about doing the show and said that they wanted an editor uh, on location with them in uh, Arkansas, Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is where they were shooting it. And um, that was fine with me. So uh, I went down there and I stayed for the entire shoot, of course. And by the time it was finished, I think the plan was originally when it was done, they didn't expect that I would have an assembly for all the episodes ready for them. So when it was, I mean, there was nothing for me to do in Arkansas except work. So when uh, they finished shooting, I had my first assembly all ready for them. And I think that's at that point they thought if it was up to me, if I wanted somebody else. But I, I felt like at this point, I, I, you know, I wanted to kind of continue on as, as the editor. So that's kind of how it worked out. So tell me a little bit about that schedule. You worked in, in Arkansas for how long? From the second week of February, that's uh, that's when I came down to Arkansas, and I left the um, very beginning of September. I was there for quite a long time. Uh, it was fun. I really, I had a great time. I mean, I had, I went down there with all these, uh, you know, images in my head of dirt roads, and I was going to be, you know, at a, a little shack, you know, somewhere in the you know, in the middle of nowhere and, you know, trying to, you know, keep myself from running into mountain men and, you know, all that kind of thing. And instead, you know, it's a college town, Fayetteville. And, and I, you know, when I got there, it was great. I mean, there was, you know, lots of really nice restaurants. There was this bookstore that was a city block long that was, uh, you know, old used bookstore, very sophisticated. And, and uh, they had two theaters. One, one theater was playing Beautiful, it was called, the um, Carol King um, musical. And the other theater was playing an anti-Vietnam War <laughs> thing. So it's not exactly, you know, my uh, idea of Arkansas had to sort of radically change when I got there. But but it was uh, great. They, they housed us. Um, there was a nice house where uh, the entire post-production uh, offices were set up in the uh, basement and... Uh, uh, I had a really nice room on the first floor, and my assistant uh, had another room right next to me, and that's where we worked. And I slept upstairs, and my assistant, uh, they had a guest house in the back. Yeah, I've done that where I've been I've been in the same house that I edited in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, You know what? I prefer that uh, whenever that can happen, because... You feel it, like it's less of a nine to five clocking in kind of job, and it just it just frees you to you can take breaks and and know that you can get back to it whenever you want, and if you have an idea, you can immediately 
you know, go like, for example, you know, I'd be, uh, you know, in the shower and you have an idea and you can just like go downstairs and, and work on it. And and you can, you know, work in your bathrobe until everybody starts <laughs> showing up. You feel more you feel like it's more of a, you know, like a like an artist or something, you know, rather than a guy who has to clock in. And, and I like it very much. Doing and like that. some guy that has to drive an hour and a half on the 405 to get to work. That's exactly that's another thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, every morning I would get up at six o'clock and I would go downstairs and put the coffee on and sit there and, you know, somewhere around between 6.30 and 7, I just go in and start looking at this work I had done the day before and and, uh, and then just start working. And then, I, like I said, I would, I would wait until I hear the first person come in and then I'd go up and shower and get dressed <laughs> and be presentable. <laughs> so, I can completely yeah. relate to that. Um, and then so when you left in, I think you said September, did you go back to L.A.? And how long did that last? Until um, just uh, the end of December. While we were in Arkansas, originally uh, we were scheduled to uh, air, and, and this was uh, vague, it wasn't set in stone or anything, but the rumor was we were scheduled to air in, in March. And so, you know, we were kind of you know, adjusting my head accordingly and everything. And then somewhere while we were in Arkansas, toward the end of the shoot, we were told that uh, HBO had given us a, an air date of uh, January 13th, and they were going to show the first two episodes on January 13th. So suddenly we were a little, not panicked, but it was like, okay, it's, this is, a, you know, we have to make some adjustments. So um, around, I think it was the end of August, now thinking about it. And then w there was a week uh, hiatus where, you know, when they moved all the uh, the media over to uh, Hula Post, which is a, a place in Burbank. And so we uh, edited there from um, early uh, September until the until the end of December, I think, or that's when it was locked, when things were locked by the end of December. But meanwhile, mixing had been going on and, and visual effects and, and, and all that. So, yeah, that's how, that's how it worked out. Let's talk a little bit about the editing itself. I know that you have a background as a sound designer. We talked a little bit about that the last time we talked. Yeah. Tell me about how that helps you or how important sound design is as you're trying to build something. I'm not really quite sure how to articulate it, except I never would have thought of entering via sound. It was just when I was looking for a job, any job, Sound Apprentice is what the first one that was uh, offered to me. And I was happy to be working in, on anything. It was a television series called The, um, the Equalizer way back in the uh, 80s, I believe. Anyway... As I for about seven years, I moved up and was finally a sound editor. I did Foley's, I did uh, ADR, dialogue editing, sound effects editing, and then moved up as a sound supervisor on a couple of shows. But I think what it really did was allow me to kind of separate and not be locked into whatever was on the production track. I often use bits of dialogue. If I, if I like a reading uh, of like a word, the way an actor emphasizes just a particular word, and I really like that, but I happen to like another take better for whatever the, the visual content or, or the way the actor looks in a particular thing. It's, it's just like second nature to like not even think of, think twice about just manipulating the dialogue, you know, manipulating the, the performance to get the best performance I can possibly get. And the same thing is that there's a lot of stuff that can happen off screen that just adds to the atmosphere, you know, the, the ambience of a particular scene. And it's just something that, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking of just adding things off screen that help tell the story or just help give you more of a sense of the environment, things like that. So I, I suspect that maybe I, if I had just gone through picture editing, you know, and, and hadn't had any experience with sound, I might not approach things the same way. I don't know if that's true, but uh, but I sometimes think that being a sound editor and and like I said, an ADR editor and Foley uh, editor, I, I do think that that really expanded my approach toward when I run cutting a scene. You mentioned how long you've been editing. Uh, tell me a little bit about that transition because you did do the transition from film to digital. How did that go, and when did that happen? Well, I was one of the last holdouts, you know, just because I'm, I'm not a technically savvy kind of guy. So I sometimes liken it to driving a car. I mean, I can, I can drive a car. I'm a 
pretty good driver, but I have no idea why when I push the accelerator, it actually moves. I have no idea what makes it work, and I just trust that it does. And and it's the same thing with the Avid. I'm pretty fast, and I and I know how to do everything, but I just did it by being having someone teach me over and over and over again. And and so the first three films that I cut, uh, I did on film. Uh, Steenbeck is what I used. All around me, everyone was you know using Avids and and other. There were other uh, digital uh, systems at the time, but I just was afraid of of you know. I thought I'm not going to be able to learn this. I, this is so foreign to me because I was still thinking of cutting, like physically cutting. I remember when there was a job. It was a, a movie called uh, Going All the Way, and uh, and I got the job, and they and they asked me if I knew how to work on an Avid. And I said, yes, because I really wanted the job. And then I thought, well, oh God, I've got like seven weeks now to learn the Avid. And I forget how I met her, but I, I met a, a woman who uh, edited commercials and she had an Avid in her home. And I asked her to teach me. And, and I said, it's maybe going to be frustrating for you a little bit because I really have to wrap my head around the whole concept of it. And I remember the first thing was, you know how when, you, when you're working on film, you're just afraid of making that first cut when you haven't made anything yet. And you're thinking, OK, I'm going to slice into this work print. And if it's not the right frame, I'm going to have to tape it up and find the right frame. You know, so so it's a real daunting thing to make that first slice into the work print. But with Avid, she had to really like you know, bang it into my head that it's like you're not cutting anything. And then it was just a matter of I think it was maybe four weeks where I went to her house two or three nights a week and she just gave me all the basics. But one funny story after it was all done and everyone's really happy. And I and I had uh, dinner with the producer, uh, Tom Gorai was his name. And he said, you never worked on an Avid before this job, did you? And I said, uh, yeah, that's true. I said, how did you know? He said, well, we were on the online. There was a shot that was supposed to be in reverse. And he said, when we were on the online, that shot was going one frame at a time. It was another frame because I didn't know that there was, <laughs> I didn't know that there was a, a thing where you could, so I just figured I had to do it one frame at a time uh, to, to get it to go backwards. You know, so, but at least they didn't find out until the online because they were, I can imagine they're just sitting around going, what the hell? You know, and it's just like another frame and then it would, you know, find the frame and then another frame, just one frame at a time until that shot was finished. So um, I got caught out finally. That is a fantastic story. I love that. Wow. And while we're talking about transitions, transitions from film to digital, I'm really interested in, especially in, in True Detective the transitions between scenes and how like making that decision of the exact moment to cut or how you're going to transition from one scene to another. Of course it was informed by the script, you know, where things are going as far as whether it was going to be a, a hard cut or whether it was going to be some dialogue pre-lapping or whether you were going to dissolve. That was where the choices were, you know, I mean, I, and I, and all I can say is it was just a feel, you know, it was just something that, uh, I mean, for example, in the very beginning, so I believe it's some uh, a few establishing shots, aerial shots of the the uh, uh, Arkansas, and then it's the bicycle, the the rear wheel, the bicycle that had the um, baseball card in there, and and that was to me when I heard it, it was just the the production track, but it it had a, a ticking clock kind of sound to me, and you know, like as the bicycle card was slapped, and we tick tick, tick. And I presented that to Nick and, and said, you know, that would be a nice kind of thing if we transition over to the next shot of uh, Mahershala as a, Mahershala's character, Wayne Hayes, as an old man getting ready for this interview. And so when we went from his face uh, remembering, it wasn't so much he was literally remembering the, the bicycle, but that sound kind of made, you know, made it easier to sort of see that he was remembering this case that was haunting him and that he was going to be talking about. And originally we had a hard cut to 1990 when he was sitting in the um, interview uh, room. And, and somehow I just thought, well, this is the opening and I want to make sure everybody realizes that everything they're going to be seeing up until the end of episode five was coming from his point of view. So that's when, you know, a dissolve 
seemed like a better choice. So then you could sort of, you know, it, it gave you more of an impression, at least to me, that that he's he's now remembering when he was called back into the interview uh, in 1990. And uh, but it was just a, 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 a really a case by case basis, whether it felt better to to just uh, hard cut to something, you know, uh, or whether it felt better to prelap a, a, a bit of dialogue from the past or the future or whatever. So, so yeah, there wasn't any hard and fast rule. It was whatever felt, uh, felt like it told the, the story the best way. You had, um, you mentioned that there's this kind of jumping back and forth in time and you see him at different ages. Um, was all that uh, actually scripted or did you find that there were times when you had to mess with when you were making that transition? There were times when we adjusted the um, the structure. You know, we, we moved some of the uh, the structure around. But but to be perfectly honest, no, I would say ninety percent of it was exactly how it was scripted. Nick uh, Pizzolatto, the the creator of the entire series, and uh, he wrote all of the scripts. Two of them he co-wrote with with someone else. But he time he has this uh, he he really plays with this concept of time that uh, I was actually looking it up yesterday. There's this philosophical uh, it's a d- you know deeper than I can handle you know but uh, there's there's a philosophical concept that all time exists in, in you know it's all existing at once. And and we're just perceiving it in a linear fashion, but actually, and I think that that philosophy. I've never talked to Nick about this, but I think that's kind of what he goes after sometimes. That it's because in True Detective, there's a scene where many scenes actually where 1990s Wayne Hayes is actually seeing his future self, you know, or seeing something, you know, that like there's a, there's the scene where. Um, uh, he's sitting in bed with his wife, and she's reading the uh, Jungle Book uh, bedtime story to their children. And we see his older self looking at them through the bedroom door, and the older self starts pushing the door open. And then we cut to 1990s Wayne, and he sees the door opening. He doesn't see his older self, but he sees the door opening. And and uh, that was part of you know the whole Nick's philosophy of how the you know how the show is is going to be told that we're, we're constantly ping-ponging back and forth. Now, at the end of episode five, where um, uh, Wayne talks his partner, Roland, and they're both old men, talks him into, you know, let's, let's, even though we're no longer on the job, we're retired, we haven't solved this case, and let's, let's still follow these clues and try to solve the case. And from then on, we know we not only go back and forth in time, but we also have a you know a pretty linear uh, concept of their follow them following through to the uh, to solving the case. You mentioned that there were a couple of different instances where the structure did change. Do you remember any of those, and why did you feel they needed to change? Oh, that was when we were uh, when we were sitting with. Um, with Nick when we were fi- during the final uh, pass uh, when when Nick was working with me, I have to be honest. I can't think of the time. I, I do know that it was in the in the finale. I knew we had to make some hard choices because of length, and there were several scenes that I really really hated losing, and and I think they were they were really important, but they were the kind of scenes that you could um, you could remove. And it wouldn't hurt the story, although there were character elements and things that were revealed that would would have been nice to have in there. But we were we were a little bit long in, in, the, in the finale. But I understand uh, that uh, whenever the um, Blu-ray and the DVD is released, that uh, these I mean, I, I know that I did restore those scenes uh, for the Blu-ray and DVD. I'm, I'm hoping that they'll remain in the uh, in the release. So it would be really nice to see the finale as it was originally uh, intended uh, before we had to make some hard choices for uh, just for length. Uh, so there were other directors, I'm assuming, other than Nick? Or Nick didn't direct anything? No, he Nick directed two episodes. It was originally supposed to be a director named Jeremy Saulnier. Uh, he was going to do one, two, three uh, Nick was always going to do episodes four and five, and then he was going to continue and do six, seven, and eight. 
But there was a, a lot of this is way beyond my uh, knowledge, but I, I do know at some point there became a, a scheduling conflict. And I, I think it may have been because we were going long in, in the first two episodes. Uh, they were cross-boarded, the first two. And uh, at some point, uh, Jeremy bowed out. And uh, there was kind of a scramble, and we uh, got Dan Sackheim, who had done a number of things for HBO. Uh, I know he did The Leftovers and Game of Thrones. And he came in and took over for episode three, and then uh, six, seven, and eight. So, so yeah, there were so there were three directors: uh, Jeremy Saulnier, Nick Pizzolatto, and uh, Dan Sackheim. Uh, the reason why I asked was that you mentioned that you didn't make those structural changes until you know you got in with Nick. Um, those are the kind of things. That's the difference between film and TV, right? Is that you you're working with this director and you're going to do what he says and probably stick closer to the script while you're with the director. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely, um, yeah, I think in, in, in most cases, I think, I don't, I don't know, but when it's a show like True Detective that the entire series is coming from Nick Pizzolatto's head and, and you don't want to start messing around with his structure. Well, you know, that you just reminded me of something, though. Episode three, uh, while we were in Arkansas, as we were reading the scripts, as I was reading the scripts, I remember thinking, is the audience going to be confused by some of this? And, and is it a good confusion, like an intriguing confusion, or is it just confusion and, and I can't follow this? This was early on. Like I said, it was episode three, and Dan had come over to the editing room, and we were working together. And I remember thinking, I think if we move this scene over here then we'll introduce this concept and that way the audience won't be confused when it comes up later. And this, and Dan thought, you know, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. And we started moving a couple of scenes around and everything. And then we watched it. And for some reason it didn't work as well as when we had it in the script form. And so that was one moment when I realized, you know, I really have to trust the script. I really have to trust Nick, which sounds like obvious. Of course I should. But but I thought I was being clever and like, you know, helping the audience figure something or, you know, or not be lost by shuffling some scenes around. And we instantly when we watched it, it was better the way Nick wrote it. And so at that point, we realized let's let's not, you know, outsmart ourselves here and, and, and let's just really trust the structure that Nick has created, even though uh, in, in this series, certainly they would talk about things in episode five, for example, they're talking about something they had done and they allude to a killing. And we don't know what that is until episode seven. And that was the kind of thing that made me think, is this going to be off-putting for the audience? Are they going to, but it turned out not to be, but, but yeah, that was the, that was the main thing. The idea that, that in Nick's structure, events would be referred to, but not set up. They wouldn't tell you what they were talking about. They would just say, yeah, and remember when you did that thing, you know, and, and you have no idea what they're talking about because it's not going to be revealed for another three or four episodes. But that was the thing that ultimately, when we put it all together, turned out to be really intriguing. And uh, my hat was off to Nick for being able to keep all those plates spinning or balls in the air or whatever cliche you want to use. I'm really intrigued by the fact that it, editing is a process, right? That you are experienced enough to say, um, one, hey, I think I'll change this. And then two, you watch it and it's not right. And you just change it back. It's not like things are locked in stone. Do you feel like as as someone with a good, you know, experienced editor that you feel comfortable with it being a process? Oh, absolutely. I have to say that was the great thing about working with Nick. I mean, I had never met him before. He was so easy to work with and not at all precious of, of his work, his words, the dialogue, anything like that. And he really welcomed ideas. I mean, you know, sometimes he'd use them, sometimes he wouldn't. A, a, a good example of that, I can, I can tell you for people who are familiar with the series, it was a small scene. It was a, a school bus driving to in the middle of this neighborhood, it stops. And uh, as it was scripted and as they shot it, and as I originally put it together, the school bus stops, the doors open, 
there's a little pause where nobody shows up. And then one by one, a little boy first and then a little girl, they come out of their house, followed by their parents who are watching them nervously. And finally, there's some 20 kids from all over that particular neighborhood who climb on the bus and they get seated. And you're on the parents nervously watching them because of the you know, killer that uh, you know, killed the little boy. And, and then the bus pulls away. And I just had this idea. What I loved about it is, is in, in a lot of cases, you get a sense from a director that they don't want your ideas. It's not often, but you do sometimes work with directors who don't want you to step too far out of your lane, you know, and, and you know, and, and just like, just, you know, do it the way I ask you to. And, and in this case, I just thought, you know, if you really wanted to show that everyone was frightened to death and, and didn't want to, and, and was, they were afraid of letting their kids out of their sight. I did a version where the bus pulls up, it stops, opens its door, and nobody comes out. And the bus just hangs there for a few beats and then closes its doors and empty. It just pulls away. And I showed it to Nick and he thought it was great, you know, and, and, and that was just such a relief that it's like, oh, I can try things, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't have to worry about offending the director or the director taking it the wrong way that I'm doing something completely different. And, uh, and, and I'm better at showing than telling anyway. I like to, you know, here's an alternate version of the scene where you don't see this or you do see this or, you know, or I move things around. But, but that was, uh, that was one extreme example, but there were examples like that throughout the entire series where, uh, you know, I would just say to Nick, hey, you know, I did another ver I did an alternate version of this scene. You want to look at it. And, and he was way open to like, you know, yeah, great. He was excited about, you know, seeing a different version. And he was very confident in what he had written, that if he thought it made it better, it was included. And if he liked it, but it wasn't what he had in mind, it, you know, it was like, yeah, no, it's I really like it, but I prefer it the way I had it. So, you know, that was that was the experience. And, and it was why this job for me was was one of the most fun and, and uh, satisfying jobs as as an editor. You mentioned that you had this new, different version of school bus pulling up and pulling away. I'm assuming you presented his version first and then said, "Here's my version." I don't think that uh, it was right away. I don't think I had that idea initially. You know, like while I was cutting the scene, I think it was just something that as I watched the show over and over again, then I thought, you know, gee, you know, it just, you, you just hope for these ideas where that's, what's great about directors who leave you the freedom to try things and, and, and don't make you feel that you're, you know, you're, you're somehow running the risk of offending them if you do something new, because, you know, I, I, I don't know why, but then one day it just popped into my head that it's like, oh, you know, the, you know may it be nice if, no one, they don't want their kids to leave the house. They, you know, no one comes out for the school bus that day. And I just thought it was, it said it so, so much more. It made the scene tighter and, and it, and it, I think it said it even more poetically, you know, than, than watching all the kids file out and seeing the worried faces and all that stuff. I mean, that was an alternate way of doing it. It was just, uh, it was just something I thought to try and, and Nick happened to approve of it. But that was, that was the thing about this job that I, I loved so much is that I, I could try things. And, and that's what makes it exciting. You know, you're not just putting it together exactly as it was scripted. You feel like a writer in some ways. You know what I mean? It's that part of, of the editing that I really love is, is you know, you're, re, you know, they always say it's not a cliche. I mean, it's actually true, but you're, you're actually rewriting the script when you're in the editing room, because once you see what the, the actors have done and, and once you see the structure, it's not just words on paper, but you're actually experiencing it you sometimes feel like, okay, this is, why is this not working? Or this is too slow or things like that. And you, and it gets your creative juices going to see how we can solve the problem. Um, when you are looking at dailies, when you're first seeing stuff that's come in, especially since you mentioned that things were cross-boarded, so you're seeing things in a worse order than you would see with a film usually. Yeah, and in this case, it was uh, you know more extreme because the episodes were there were things that were shot for episode one that weren't shot until somewhere around episode six or seven. You know, specifically the uh, the old man, uh, the old Wayne scenes because. It's it was like a you know six hour makeup job and and uh, and you want to keep 
uh, Mahershala, you know, you, you, you know, you don't want him ping-ponging back and forth because he did such an amazing job of being a completely different character. I mean, the way he walked, the way he talked, the, his body, his posture, everything was he was he was brilliant. I mean, every his 1980 version, his 1990 version of Wayne and his 2015 version of Wayne were were they were completely different. They were the same person, but they had evolved. And 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 he really took on the weight and the whatever of of being a a 70 year old man. And it was just fascinating to watch. But a lot of that material was shot later so that uh, he didn't have to like constantly, as far as his, his acting goes, he didn't have to constantly be ping-ponging back and forth between two completely different physical physicalities and things like that. So, um, Because of that cross-boarding, did you have a different method than you normally would, say, on a feature film or on some other TV shows, of trying to put scenes together? Because I know a lot of people say, as soon as I can put scene one next to scene two, I put them together. What about you? I usually put that off for a while. I, I, I just have a bin of cut scenes and I just have the scenes cut. There's a point where somewhere around three quarters of the way through or maybe, you know, 80% of the scenes are done. Then I just have that moment where it's like, okay, now it's one, two, three, four, you know, put them in order. And then you see, you know, you have to recut things sometimes because of, you know, the where you're, you're transitioning from this shot. You don't want to end on a start on a wide shot normally. You know, you just want to have some kind of variety. Anyway, uh, so yeah, it's I, I, I usually save that till much later so that I don't have to keep reworking it over and over and over again. Yeah, that, I do that though on, on almost everything that, that I work on. I, I, I put off stringing it all together until uh, much, much further down the road because then I'll start adding sound effects and music and, and all those things. And, and uh, it's not until I have a real, a whole lot of scenes to work with that, that it works for me. I see it. I get a chance to see, see it in a, you know, as, as close to a, you know, completed version as I can. Of course, there are always little uh, scene missing kind of things you know, that are in there, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I hold off on, on putting it all together until, uh, until further down the road. That's so interesting to me. Everybody's got a different methodology. A lot of what I do is just, it's just, it feels like the only way I can describe it, it feels like instinctive rather than I don't have a, uh, I don't have a scientific approach or a mathematical approach or anything like that. I just try to um, get into a a, a zone, if I can use that term, you know, you just, I, I, I don't like to have interruptions if I can help it. And, and for example, I really throw people that work with me because I don't eat lunch when I'm working. I really like to just stay, not that I don't have a little snack here and there. And, and I, I take a break now and then just to clear my head or try to figure out a, a, a problem. But once I start working, I really like to just stay in the room working and, and have as few interruptions as possible so that my subconscious can start figuring things out for me. And I just try things and, and, and I try putting, you know, it's almost like, you know, I'll look at, I'll, uh, you know, I'll open up a bin of whatever the scene is and, and I'll see what the angles the director has given me. And then I just reading the script and seeing what the intent is of the scene. I just start putting together as if I was the director or a storyboard artist or something. It's like, you know, I, yeah, I think it'd be nice if we start tight on this and sometimes the director, it's clear where he wants you to begin or what his or her idea of where, where to begin is. But sometimes, you know, you have choices. And uh, and then I just start going from, you know, just, you know, shot by shot by shot. I just think I think it'd be nice if we, you know, go to a close up here or this is where I want to go back and show you the environment and, and all those kind of things. It's all it's just whatever feels right. And then, you, and then you're constant, I'm constantly making adjustments and painting myself into a corner and going back and, and, and doing things a little differently. But, but that's what is kind of fun is just, just staying in that uh, moment where you're not totally consciously making a decision, but just feeling like, you know, yeah, now I want to go here and now I want to cut to this. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out whether you watch all of your dailies before you do that, or are you literally look at the coverage and go, that's the shot I want to start on. And then you have to pick a tape probably, right? Well, that's the thing. Yeah, you, you can 
the great thing, uh, as opposed to, you know, going back to the steam back, you know, when you wanted to cut to a close up, you had to like take the reel of wide shot that you were, you know, the master that you were looking at and, you know, go to the bin if, or, you know, go to the, you know, take it out of the box and put it up and try to find it. But with the Avid, of course, you know, you, you can just, I can say, okay, here, I, I, I like to get a sense of the scene. So I'll watch a few of the takes. But I mean, sometimes you'll get four hours of dailies and I don't know how any, I can't, I don't know how I could possibly watch four hours of dailies, take notes and remember where anything was, you know, I just, you know, so it's, it's easier for me to, you know, watch, you know, some of the dailies and just to get a sense of, of the blocking and and the scene. And then, you know, just go from take to take and, you know, I can just with a click of a mouse, I can, you know, try see every version of that line, you know, in, in this. I know some editors, I don't do this, but I know some editors have their assistants cut every line from every take and so that they can just watch them. And, you know, I just do it, you know, clicking back and forth between the different takes. And I, and I just, you know, find the the version that I like, the one, the one that actually kind of resonates with me and I think is, the, is the, the best reading or the one that works best in the scene. And I'm just constantly moving back and back and forth between all of the, the different angles and, and checking out all the different takes. And it's just easier for me to work that way. And, and it's maybe it's maybe it's more time consuming or maybe it's maybe I spend more time working on the scene than uh, than another editor might. But it's the way I work. You, know. you, you might be faster that way. <laughs> a lot of people talk about doing the selects reels. That takes a long time to make one of those line outs. I, I remember thinking early on, I forget what show it was, but I remember thinking, you know what, I'm, you know, I've heard too many people talk about watching all the dailies. And I thought, well, maybe I should do that. And I remember one day, you know, just thinking, okay, I'm just going to take my notepad out. And, and it just didn't work for me because I just, my brain just started getting confused and it's like, well, that's good too. And I don't know, is this the, is this my favorite take or, no, that's a good one too. And where, you know, oh, there's that moment. Let me try to remember where it is and what to, you know, and, and I just had a whole bunch of notes that, that, uh, I don't know, it wasn't, it, it didn't work for me. It wasn't, it wasn't a good way for me to operate. But before you start actually cutting or you've chosen the first shot, because yeah. you've kind of described how you like to start. How much of the dailies do you watch? Do you watch one of every setup, or do you not even do that? I would say uh, it, it varies, to be perfectly honest. First of all, I, I ask my assistant when he or she is getting things prepared for me to put locators if there are restarts uh, in the scene or if there is a, a change in camera position, you know, just so that I'm aware, you know, I'll watch like the, you know, every setup, you know, I'll watch it through just to, just to familiarize myself again, just to kind of wallow in the scene, you know, and just kind of get used to, you know, what, what the scene is and what the rhythms are and, 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 and try to get a sense of how the director sees it because, you know, you can, you can often tell from what the angles are, what the setups are and how the camera moves, what, what the director intends. And I try to intuit that from the dailies. And of course, looking at the script notes is that there's anything specific about this is the director's favorite reading of a particular line or something like that. I always go by the script supervisor's notes, but a lot of times it's just putting all this material into my subconscious brain. So I can just, if I watch the scene over and over and over again from the different setups and things like that, I, I just start to feel like I'm in that scene. I'm in that moment, which is why I don't really prefer to just work straight through lunch and all that stuff so that uh, I'm kind of in the scene and I have it in my head. And then I just start putting it together and, and you know, whatever feels right to me and, and constantly making adjustments, you know, constantly saying, oh, you know, OK, that's nice. But let me try it this way. And, let me, you know, it's just playing, really, just playing around and, and uh, hoping to get the best version of the scene and. Then you present it to the director and they like it or they have their own takes. And why I intended really to start here. And, you know, sometimes you can't tell some. I mean, I there were moments I remember where, uh, you know, Dan Sackheim, for example, would say, well, you know, my intention was really to start with this take here. And it's oh, now I get it. OK, which is fine, you know, and and, and it's kind of fun. It's like, oh, I didn't I, I, I didn't see that, you know, when, when I was looking at the daily. So. And that takes some maturity, I think, right, not to be insulted by that, to, to go, oh, 
that's a great idea, but not to feel embarrassed that you didn't think of it. Oh no, no, yeah, no. I, I believe me. I've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to. Uh, I mean, I like what I do, and and I'm and I'm happy with my skill set and whatever you want to call it. I, 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 I like the work I do, but at the same time, I don't think I've ever. It's rare. It happens. I mean, it, there. Are, it, sometimes you're just on a show where it's just going. It's just you know that you're not in sync with the with the director or or the person or the showrunner, whoever. And, and there are there have been shows where I just think my version of these scenes was was so much better. But I would say that eighty five ninety percent of the time, it's always better after the the director comes in and and then the showrunner comes in. You know because. Uh, Again, I'm just trying to interpret the scene and also the intention of the director, uh, you know, and and, uh, and things move so fast now that you really don't have time to sit with the director and, and ask him about these things because you try to get in touch with them and they're just so busy and they've, you know, they've got a long shooting day. They want to try to make their days and, and then they're just working, you know, in their hotel room or whatever on the next day's thing, you know, and, and their their head is somewhere else and they can't really... You know, they don't have time to, to sit with you on the phone and say, well, here's what I had in mind and all that. So. Um, so, yeah. So I, I, I uh, I'm not uh, insulted at all. As a matter of fact, sometimes there there are there are times when it's like, oh, my God, that's such a better way of starting this than I did. You know? But not to be defensive about that. It's what I'm saying is you, I think a young editor, I can think of myself early on in my career where somebody would say that and I would either feel embarrassed or I would get defensive about it when it, when what you should really do as an experienced editor is say, let's give that a try. That sounds great. I think also it all depends on on who's saying it to you and the, the intent uh, which they say it to you, you know, um, because, you know, I've worked with directors who, you know, and it's all it's almost always first time uh, directors who feel somehow that there are people who are first time directors who feel somehow a director has to be this kind of, you know, you know, I'm I'm the auteur. I know it all and all that sort of stuff. And, and when you feel you're being insulted by them saying you didn't do something right, that's a different that's a, I mean, I have a thin skin when it comes to that sort of thing. I don't I don't like being, uh, you know, I'm not a whipping boy or anything. I mean, I, I really don't like being insulted. But if the director is if, if I in, in most cases, I think when when you really have a, you know, a nice, friendly trusting relationship with the director then i'm i'm all ears when it comes to like you know how you had intended something to go and you know i'm i'm uh, i'm perfectly happy to make it better if it makes it better i'm and if i don't think it make it i mean i'm perfectly uh, also uh, willing to sort of um, in a little passive aggressive way just kind of keep showing my earlier version and say you know here's the reason I think this works better, you know, and, and you can, you know, and I, I, I did that. I remember, uh, on true detective speak now or forever hold your peace. It's like, I know we're almost ready to lock, but I just can't help thinking that I liked my version better. And let me pitch it one more time to you and tell you why I think this is better. And if you say no, then all I, I can say, I can sleep now knowing that I did my best and I tried and it just, you know, we just saw things differently. And that happens sometimes because it's subjective. I mean, it, all of this is subjective. You know, there's not, there's not one way of editing a film or, or, or one way of directing a film or shooting a film. There's so many different ways and that's where the personalities come in. You know, I mean, you, you get the sense of the Certainly, you get a sense of Nick's personality through there. And, and I like to think, I like to flatter myself that I have a certain personality in the way I approach scenes. I think every editor does. I think every editor, every good editor, is, is, is kind of um, responding to the dailies in his or her own way and putting it together the way they think the scene is best told. And sometimes that aligns with the, the director or the showrunner. And sometimes it's just a different way of of saying it. Some people like, I mean, some people like to stay in the master for a longer time than I would feel comfortable with it, you know, in certain scenes. And, and that's just their particular style. They don't like to focus on something with a, with a cut, you know, they, they like to let the blocking and everything handle itself. And really they just covered themselves, but they had no intention of ever using the shots. 
And that's another thing because, you know, you look at the, 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 the setups and you don't know whether sometimes the director was just covering his ass and thinking, you know, I have no intention. And that, that has happened where, you know, a, a few times where the director said, I never intended to use that shot. You know, and I would think, well, why did you shoot it seven times? But, you know, <laughs> you know, but but, you know, those are things that happen when you're working with the director. And it's like, oh, I didn't I didn't know that you had no intention of using that shot. I thought that it was shot there for a reason. But sometimes they just cover themselves because you never know. And and that's the difference between television and, and a lot of films is because for a television director, the worst thing I think that they can feel is that a producer asked for something and you didn't shoot it. Do you not have a close up of that uh, notepad, you know, when you're, you wrote, you know, whatever, you know, you, you mean you didn't shoot the, uh, you know, the, when he puts the gun down, you don't have a shot of the gun, you know, on being laid onto the table, you know? So a lot of times to avoid that awkward situation, they, they shoot things that they don't have any intention themselves of using, but just to, in case somebody asks for it. Uh, since you've got a background in sound, I would love to ask you about the value of having the editor in the mix. I'm assuming you're going to the mixes afterwards. What, what, what do you do in the mix? What, what purpose are you serving? I think it's critical, and it's a shame that uh, a lot of times uh, in, in television, the, um, the editor is not invited to the mix. I wasn't in the mix for the, um, for the actual mixing, but when they have a playback. I'm invited for the playback, but I have never, ever, 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 ever gone to a mix when I haven't detected a dropped line. There was a, there was a, there may be an off camera line there, or, you know, there was something that they just didn't see because, you know, in the old days, you know, the old film Steenbeck days, you had cue sheets that, you know, ever the mixer had, you know, huge cue sheets and they saw every track and what was on every track. And, you know, there would be dialogue A through G or whatever, and, you know, then effects one through, you know, you name it. And and so it was easier for them to see like, oh, there's an off camera line here. I didn't see that. But now that they're working again, you know, in a, in a different way, every single time, I mean, and, and it happened in True Detective as well, where, you know, it's not the 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 face maybe isn't you know directly on camera so you don't notice that there's a a piece of a line or an entire line that was that's important that that uh so first of all if for no other reason an editor is important to be there because nobody knows the tracks uh, like you do the other thing is i can tell when they've switched takes on me and sometimes they do that not for malicious reasons but the sound editor will say this sounds a little bit off mic, and, and so I'm going to find an alternate reading. And it may be an inferior reading, but they just think technically it sounds better. And the mixer doesn't know, you know, that, that that's not the, the original reading of the line. And so it's for things like that. So mainly for me, uh, I guess more, most importantly, it's for catching things like that. Everything from the volume to, you know, the way transitions are done or to the backgrounds and things like that. And, and I know that I have lots of particular notes about, you know, could, can't really hear. It's important that we hear this word in this, in this line. You know, it's important that this word really pops. So if you could just find some way of, you know, boosting that volume a little bit or, you know, th things like that, just to, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's for me, it's, it's uh, critical that I, you know, have a, a chance to at least voice, you know, my feelings about the way it was mixed. There was a show I worked on called Wayward Pines and, and there was a, a scene where somebody, a, a shotgun went off next to somebody's head. And, and what I had done was I had put this kind of tinnitus kind of this kind of sound through it. I had muffled all of the dialogue and, and all of the effects and everything so that you just heard this tinnitus sound and everything else was done as if it was underwater, you know, talking like that. And when I went to the mix, they had not done it. As a matter of fact, they had, they, all the sound was clear and they had folded everything and they did have that sound, but not the one I had put in there. 
after they've mixed it and they're playback, the one thing they don't want to do is remix a scene. So they'll start to push back a little bit sometimes. And, and I said, you know, this is not the concept of it. You know, and I told the concept and I said, and by the way, that's not the same sound. And they tried to, you know, gaslight me and say, no, it's the same sound. It just sounds different in the room. You know, it's like, no, I, I, I know the sound, believe me, you know. So, so it was just, a, you know, it was a bit of a, a struggle because you don't want to be the guy who's holding up the mix at however many hundreds of dollars an hour. But at the same time, you know, you're protective of your work and, and you know that it's a much better scene the way you had, the way not only you had prepared it, but the way everybody had signed off on it. And, you know, so, um, but, but in the true detective case, we had the best mixers. Uh, they were just so, so, first of all, so good and so receptive the way we were just talking about editor and director relationship. It was the same thing. I, I didn't feel funny at all about the most nitpicky kind of, you know, adjustments I wanted them to make. They were like, it was, it was just a dream experience with these guys. They were, they were just the best in it. And it sounded exactly sounded better than I could have hoped, you know, every, uh, you know, every episode was, was great. And that's the best situation where you're working with the, uh, the mixers and, and you're not like, you know, suddenly like, all right, sit down, boy, we'll take over from here. Yeah. It's, it's always great in, in film when everybody's trying to plus it. And you feel like everybody's trying to plus it. I don't know why. I don't know. Except some people, maybe it's just they got up on the wrong side of the bed, or maybe they're just, you know, it's just to them, it's just another gig, you know, okay, you know, next, you know, here's another, here's another film. But, you know, I and, you know, most of the people I work with take what we do really seriously, and you only have this one chance once they lock it. That's it. You can't sit there and watch it on television and say, oh, man, you know, that we should have I forgot that line was dropped and, you know, or what happened. Or, you know, you don't have any of that. So, yeah, it's it, it's best when everybody really, really, really cares about making the show as good as they possibly can within the time constraints. You know, because it's not like a feature a mixing schedule. You know, there's a couple of days, a few days and, and one playback day and that's it. Uh, Leo, thank you so much for all of your time. I think I've got all the answers that I could, uh, could ask for. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. This was great. And, and, uh, I know the last time we talked and, and even that thing with the, the edit, I, I still want to make my case for the editing versus cutting thing that I said were two different things. <laughs> and the only way I can put it is I'm sure you've seen films that were beautifully cut. It's just the rhythms, perfect, everything, but they're like a half hour too long. You know, they're like 20 minutes too long. Now, to me, editing is writing. It's the writing part. It's not the technical end. So that was the thing. I just thought, it's just one of those things that I feel like, I know that I'm not explaining this properly, you know, but it's like, but my feeling is there's, and maybe, it, maybe it's just a semantic thing, but it's like, to me, there's cutting, which is the technical part, which is what, what, where do you make the cut? What frame do you cut on? What's the rhythm? All that kind of stuff. But then there's the editing, which is like, you know, if we... You know, we don't, you know, this scene doesn't have to be this long, you know, I mean, or this film doesn't have to be this long. There are lots of, this is redundant. We've already done this. We've already said this before and let's tighten it up and, and make it. Anyway, sorry. Thank you for letting me <laughs> explain myself a little more clearly. I'm glad you did. That, that was uh, enlightening. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Leo Trombetta, ACE. I'm Steve Hullfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like, leave a comment, or make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.